What makes some children curious and teachable and others resistant to school? How can I help my child become more resilient to stress and problems in later life? Why has my child become so defiant? It feels like my child is emotionally distant. How can I repair our relationship? We're going to discuss these questions and more on this episode. You're listening to Simple Wonders, the podcast for parents who want to raise happy, curious, lifelong learners. Hi, I'm your host, Jessica Smith, certified family life educator and mama of three. Join me as we explore simple tools to nurture your child's heart and mind. This episode is on love and attachment, but it is a part two. If you have not listened to part one, I recommend doing that, although you don't have to listen to them in order. You can listen to part one after this one. Part one is about the spiritual aspects of love and attachment, and the second episode will be on the more scientific aspects of attachment theory. So let's get started. In 1907 in London, a little boy, John Bowlby, was born to Sir Anthony Alfred, a baronet and member of medical staff to the king. Like most children from wealthy families, he was raised primarily by a nanny and saw very little of his mother or his father. When he was four years old, his nanny found employment elsewhere. Although it was probably a difficult separation for her, it was life-changing for the six children she had raised. John experienced a deep sense of loss. And when he was seven years old, he was sent to a boarding school, further preventing him from forming a relationship with his family, especially his mother. John Bowlby eventually became a psychologist and took an interest in maladapted children, especially children left orphans after World War II. His childhood experiences and relationships with his caregivers were a driving force behind his interest in parent-child attachment. As he studied orphan children, he began to see a pattern both in the circumstances and subsequent behavior. He theorized that infants form attachments with their most present attentive caregivers, usually mothers, in his case it was his nanny, and this attachment sets the foundation for future relationships and behavior. Attachment is a survival technique, and only those that are able to form secure attachments will survive. The infant will attempt to develop an attachment at all costs, even if it's with an inconsistent or abusive caregiver. And if the caregiver is not present enough to form an attachment, the child may form attachment to peers or even objects. These attachments cause many issues. The most serious is reactive attachment disorder, in which a child has never formed a secure attachment and is unable to form a relationship with any person later in life. This child shows little or no emotion and shows no desire for affection. Now, most of the most of what we know about reactive attachment disorder is from orphanages in Romania. These children were just kept alive. Um, they didn't have much luck look at. They didn't have they didn't have sensory stimulation. They didn't have attachments. And when these children were adopted, they would just run away from caregivers. They were not able to form a secure attachment and feel like I need to stay in the house with this person because they're safe. They really, there was no difference between 
the adopted parent that they'd been with for months and a complete stranger. Now you can help um, fix this. It is very difficult and there's not a great success rate. Um, And so it is just very devastating. And it is just proof that there is so much that needs to be done in the first few years of life, especially when it comes to attachment with a caregiver, preferably parents. So what is attachment exactly and how is it formed? Well, attachment is described as a relational force, kind of like gravity or magnets. Charlotte Mason described a child relationship with a parent, kind of like the planets orbiting around the sun. Um, Dr. Gordon Neufeld kind of talked, he related it to magnetism. But the But attachment doesn't just apply to parent-child relationships. It also applies to all human relationships as we are all capable of becoming attached to another person. So we begin attachment at birth through physical touch and proximity. We become attached to those that we are close to, um, spend quantity amount of time and quality by being close. Newborns attach through smell and taste and the um, sound of a voice and the feeling of um, their skin and being being close. The next stage is imitation. You can see um, about one, two-year-old, they start to imitate what you do using any object to talk on the phone, to read a book. They copy the sentences or phrases that we use. Then they next belonging. So a child wants to belong, wants to feel like they belong to their parent, and they also want their ch- their parent to belong to them. And if you have a new sibling entering the family around t- when your toddler's about two years old, which is around this time period when belonging becomes a very important part of attachment, it will be very difficult for the two-year-old to see their mommy belong to someone else or, um, you know, a new sibling. So that can be kind of difficult, but you can see how they want to feel like they belong to you. And then the next stage is significance. They want to feel not only that they belong to you, but that they are important. And they may show their attachment by showing how important you are to them. Um, Sharing with you, they may, um, they may want to be with you a lot to show that you are more important to me than my toys. And they will ask that of you in return. They're going to want you to sacrifice some of your time or your things to show how much that they belong, they, um, how important they are to you. Next comes love. They are are going to want to show their love. And this is probably around, if I remember right, five or six. Love is going to be a big thing. And I have noticed this a lot with my five-year-old. He wants to hold my hand. He wants to cuddle. He wants to play with my hair. He's constantly touching my arm. He wants to know that he's loved. And he wants to show me that he loves me. And so just these feelings of love. Then sharing secrets. And as a parent, you don't want to share real important intimate secrets with your children, but they are going to share secrets with you. They know that you are a safe place for them to share secrets. And that is a very intimate thing, very bonding thing for them, that you have something that you know, each of you know together and no one else knows. So those are the six ways that 
that Gordon, Dr. Gordon Neufeld said that we begin uh, attaching. And it's, you know, first six years of life is really when that foundation is set. But we can continue bonding with our children in those ways throughout teenagerhood. It doesn't stop at six years old. Our attachment needs to be continually nurtured throughout our child's life. So why is attachment important? Why is it so important to have these bonds with our children physically, emotionally, psychologically? Well, Bowlby's student, um, if you remember, John Bowlby was the man I introduced at the beginning that really began attachment theory or introduced us, discovered attachment theory. His student, Mary Ainsworth, went on to experiment and learn more about attachment theory. Her most well-known experiment is the strange situation. And this is how it works. A mother and child play in a room for about five minutes while a research assistant sits in the room and the researcher watches from behind a two-way mirror. At the signal, the mother gets up and leaves the room. The child is left alone with the assistant for two minutes and the researchers observe how the child reacts in the absence of, of his mother. The absence is interesting, but it's not actually the most revealing part of the parent-child attachment. What the research, researchers are really looking at is the reunion of the mother and child. A child with a secure attachment will run to the mother and seek comfort. After a minute or two, the child's stress is calmed by the dopamine produced by his mother's presence, and he can resume playing again. A child with an ambivalent attachment is clingy and will take a long time to warm up to the new situation, even when his mother is there. When the mother leaves, the child is in great distress, and when she returns, the child may seek comfort from her and then hit and push her away and then and then run to her and want comfort and push her away mothers of children with anxious this attachment is also called an an anxious attachment and the reason why the children act this way is because their mothers are usually inconsistent they're sometimes psychologically and physically available and respond but a lot of the time they are not a child with an avoidant attachment shows no emotional response to his mother's absence or her return. The child usually avoids his mother and shows no preference to his mom or a complete stranger. And this indicates that the mother hasn't been available almost at all. And the child does not feel he can rely on her for comfort or to meet his needs. Now, children in this situation are usually neglected um, pretty severely. It's rare to meet children in, with a reactive or avoidant attachment disorder. So one of the most profound findings was that attachment is generational. A child with an insecure attachment to her mother will most likely grow up to to form an insecure attachment with her children. Since Bowlby first discovered the theory of attachment, more and more psychologists have studied the effects of attachment on behavior, psychology, and general success in life. One of those was a psychologist named Michael Meany. One day at McGill University, this neuroscientist went about his day in the lab by picking up some rat pups to examine and weigh them. 
This is very common occurrence for most scientists because rats' brains structure are very similar to humans, making them a perfect candidate for all kinds of research. As Meany and his colleagues were putting the rat pups back in their plexiglass cages, they noticed a curious thing. When the pups arrived back, the in the arrived back in the cage, some mother rats rushed to their babies and spent a few minutes licking and grooming them. Other mothers would simply ignore them. The researchers took note of this and soon began to notice a distinct physiological difference in the pups that were groomed upon returning and the ones that were ignored. When the researchers handled a pup, it produced anxiety, a flood of stress hormones. But the mother's licking and grooming counteracted that anxiety and calmed down the surge of hormones. This sparked a flood of questions by the researchers. Are there different patterns of licking and grooming? And what are the long-term effects of these different patterns? So they observed the mothers and their pups and labeled them, the mothers, as either LG, low grooming, or high G, high grooming. Once the pups were weaned, separated, and housed with their same-sex siblings, um, at, they tested them 100 days later. And they gave them a series of tests to compare the low-licking grooming to the high-licking and grooming. One of those tests is called the open-filled test. A rat is placed in a large, round, open box for five minutes and allowed to explore at free will. In the second test, hungry rats are placed in a new cage for 10 minutes and offered some food. On both of these tests, the difference between the two groups was striking. The rats who hadn't been licked and groomed much as pups, so the low licking and grooming, spent on average fewer than five seconds of their five minutes daring to explore the inner part of the open field. The rats who had been licked and groomed a lot as pups, on average, spent on average 35 seconds in the inner field, seven times as long. In the 10-minute food test, the high-licking grooming rats began eating on average after just four tentative minutes, and they ate for more than two minutes in total. The low-licking and grooming rats took on average more than nine minutes to start eating, and once they did, they only ate for a few seconds. The researchers ran test after test, and the high-licking and grooming rats excelled in all of them. They were better at mazes, they were more social, they were more curious, they were less aggressive, and they had more self-control. They were healthier, and they lived longer. Meany and his team were astounded, and they wondered, does this effect take place in humans? Through 10 years of research cooperating with geneticists, they found that yes, it does. Maternal responsiveness and nurturing can turn on certain genes, a process called methylation. And it turns out that the gene sequence that got turned on was the precise segment that controlled the way the hippocampus, a part of the brain, would process stress hormones in adulthood. And this was both true in both rats and humans. In her book, Being There, why Prioritizing Motherhood in the First Three Years Matters, psychoanalyst and clinical social worker Erica Komisar lays out all the evidence why the amount of time a mother spends with her baby in the first three years of life is vital for future success and happiness. The research is indisputable. The first three years are critical for forming attachments. 
and a secure attachment with a mother will develop the brain in ways that will set up a child for a happy, fulfilling life. Another psychologist, one that I mentioned in the previous episode, that has contributed greatly to what we know about attachment is Dr. Gordon Neufeld. While practicing developmental psychology for the past 40 years, he's noticed a disturbing trend in our culture, peer orientation. After World War II, the parent-child attachment began to deteriorate and be replaced by peers. Although peer orientation was certainly a phenomenon before World War II, it wasn't so widespread and culturally accepted as it is now. Culture and tradition used to be passed down from parent to child, but this has been replaced by pop culture, children and teens passing on trends, ideas, speech, and culture to each other. And why is this happening? Well, one theory is that when World War II began, more women entered the workforce, and when it ended, they never returned home which resulted in more children entering childcare before school age and school hours being increased, not for the benefit of children, but to accommodate parents' work hours. These long hours apart from an early age made it more difficult to nurture a secure attachment between parents and more likely for children to form attachments with each other. In most daycare facilities, the caregiver-to-child ratio is upwards of 1 to 6. And 50% of daycare workers leave the profession within four years, making it very difficult for infants and toddlers to get sufficient time to form an attachment with their caregiver. Another less obvious attachment disruptor is the cell phone. As adults, we tend to see the moat in our child's eye and are unaware of the beam in our own. In other words, we see their cell phone use or even just screens in general as the main problem When in reality, our cell phone use during their entire childhood may actually be the thing that's disrupting a healthy attachment. Think how often the cell phone keeps us from watching our child at their activities, how often it prevents us from making eye contact with them when they're talking to us, and how often it prevents a natural conversation from forming. There's a very inspiring video that has been going around on Instagram lately of a father telling the story of being at his daughter's gymnastics practice. And about halfway through, his phone died. He'd He'd just been looking at it or doing work, responding emails, whatever. And it died, so he was forced to look up and watch his daughter practice. And what he noticed was that every few minutes, she would look up at him to see if he was watching. And the other kids did that as well but their parents were on their phones and were not watching them or making eye contact with their child. And it is just a testament of how much our children want to be connecting with us. Every few minutes, they're looking to us to see if we are watching. They want to bond. They want to attach. How often are we bonding and attaching with our phones when they are trying to nurture that attachment? It is so ingrained in our society for people to prefer the company of their peers. For example, for children to prefer the company of other children, teens, the company of teens, and adults, the company of adults, that it is hard to comprehend any other way. But it was different in the early 20th century and before. Children were securely attached to their parents and enjoyed and could relate to people of all ages. So, Why is peer orientation such a big deal? If it's changed, so what? Well, when a child is peer oriented, they essentially turn against their parents. 
Dr. Gornufel compares this phenomenon to a magnet. One side is attracted while the other side is repelled. He also compared it to Matthew chapter 6, verse 24. No man can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. If a child is truly peer-oriented, they will feel annoyed by their parents and avoid being around them. Like a magnet, they will be repelled. Almost anything the child says is inflammatory and irritating. This makes it nearly impossible for the child to want to follow boundaries set by the parents, listen to their counsel, or form an attachment with them. When a person is attached to another person, they imitate them. And I mentioned that earlier when we talked about the stages of attachment. So you'll notice your child feeling pressure to dress like their peers, even if it's not their style or personality. You'll notice them adopting speech and beliefs of those they are attached to. A child's self-esteem and value are wrapped up in the people that they are attached to. Unfortunately, immature adolescents are not known for their unconditional love and acceptance. Can it be any wonder that bullying, suicide, and substance abuse have increased substantially in the past few decades if children have put their vulnerable hearts and self-esteem in the hands of their peers? Most importantly, when your child becomes peer-oriented, it means their attachment with you is suffering. A child gains valuable skills through a secure attachment to an adult, much more than he does from peers. A child needs a secure attachment to a loving, caring adult for so many reasons. Here are just a few. First, it develops the prefrontal cortex. Attachment produces dopamine, which counteracts stress hormones in the brain. The prefrontal cortex is responsible for self-control, focus, attention, and making plans. So the part of the brain that is most affected by early stress is the prefrontal cortex, which is critical in mature activities of all kinds. As a result, children who grow up in stressful environments generally find it harder to concentrate, harder to sit still, and harder to rebound from disappointments. Second, an, at an attachment creates resilience. When the brain is constantly exposed to adrenaline and cortisol through chronic stress, it alters the brain and makes it more sensitive to these hormones. When a child is responded to and comforted during stressful moments, the brain is actually becoming more resilient to stress. Paul Tuff, the author of How Children Succeed, said that there is an antidote to the ill effects of early stress, and it comes not from pharmaceutical companies or early child childhood educators. It comes from parents. Parents and other caregivers who are able to form close, nurturing relationships with their children can foster resilience in them that protects them from many of the worst effects of a harsh early environment. He also said that when mothers scored high on measures of responsiveness, the impact of environmental factors like family turmoil on the child seemed almost to disappear. High quality mothering, in other words, can act as a powerful buffer against the damage that adversity inflicts on a child's stress response system. The third thing is it nurtures play. Low stress environment nurtures curiosity, imagination, cre creativity, and attention. When the brain doesn't have to worry about the security of the relationship or safety of their environment, it is free to wonder and create. Fourth, it establishes docility and authority. 
When a child has a secure attachment to an adult, they trust them and they want to please them. A secure attachment is the foundation of authority and authority is foundational to a healthy family environment and society. When I say authority, I feel like it kind of makes people bristle up because we think of authority as an authoritarian, which means do what I say because I said it or you'll be punished. And that's not the authority that I'm talking about. And if in the next episode on authority, I will explain more about why this is such an important principle of parenting and why we need to establish a healthy, positive authority in our families and why attachment is the foundation to that. So next, number five, is attachment develops self-esteem. A child first learns to view his worth through the words and actions of those that he's attached to. If the parent shows unconditional love for the young child, he will learn to love himself. If the child shows that if the parent shows the child that he is valuable even when he makes mistakes or misbehaves, the child will be much more likely to pick himself up when he fails because he sees himself as valuable. Sixth, a good attachment develops good habits. When a child is securely attached, they seek to emulate and learn from whomever they are attached to. Thanks to mirror neurons in the brain, whomever the child is attached to and spends time with, they will naturally mirror the behavior and adopt the habits of those they are around. As Deborah McNamara, author of Rest, Play, Grow, wisely noted, the values a child adopts have more to do with to whom they are attached than with the outcomes of learning. Now that you have an idea of how attachments are formed, why it's so important, let's talk about how they're damaged. So think back to the list at the beginning of how an attachment is formed. Simply think of the opposite of each item, and that is how attachments are damaged. First, physical touch and proximity. So when we spend less and less time physically together, or we rarely show physical affection, this can affect the this can affect our attachment with our children. You, this can also come out as using um, corporal punishment, spanking, slapping, or even using time out as a punishment and forcing your child to be apart from you as a punishment. The second one is imitation. So when we are annoyed and irritated by everything the child does, we show a distaste for the things that they love. Um, we criticize what they do, taking away privileges or beloved items as a punishment. Third is belonging. So if we show or express that we're not proud of our child, jokingly say, oh, he's not my kid, or pretend I'm not with him, or even showing your embarrassment or not wanting to take them places with you, that can really damage your relationship. Fourth, is significance. So looking at your phone while at their activities or while they're trying to talk to you, um, just show, showing that there are things more important than spending time with them, declining their offers to play or be together for an activity that you'd rather do. Fifth is love, expressing and showing love, uh, showing disgust and resentment for the child. And I know you're probably thinking, well, I would never do that. And I've thought that too, but when you really look at 
your body language, your tone of voice, and in where you choose to spend your time. Are you showing uh, resentment for your child or annoyance or disgust um, and rarely expressing your love and appreciation? And this pops, this can pop up mostly in correcting their behavior. And in the last episode, I talked about reviling and condemning them. This is definitely the opposite of showing love. And last but not least is sharing secrets, sharing special um, things just between yourself. So the opposite would be not listening to them when they want to talk to you and, and share things that are special to them. You, if you go to the beginning with having time alone and, and being close in proximity. If you don't have enough of that time, your child's not going to be able to open up to you and share their deepest vulnerabilities and their secrets. Um, also, if they do share deep vulnerabilities and secrets and you get mad at them or you berate them or trivial, trivialize them or invalidate their feelings, depending on the age of your child, the extent of your attachment, and also their personality, all these things are going to play into how attached you are. And so it helps to look at what your child is really asking for. If they have to ask you to come play with them, if they have to ask you to put your phone down, if they have to ask you to watch, then they have already passed that point of needing it. And as a parent, we should be giving it to them without them having to beg for it and ask for it. So how can we mend relationships? Like I said, t we need to give physical affection and be physically close to them. Lots of studies show that children who are given a healthy physical touch throughout infancy and childhood grow up to be more social and moral than children who are given negative touch or deprived of any touch at all. When you're talking to your child, touch their shoulder, hold hand when you walk into a store, give them hugs when you wake up and go to bed, or even cuddle before bed while you read a book massage their hands after a long day of school. Boys does not enjoy talking at the end of the day. It's just not something, I guess it's not his love language, but rubbing his hands or even his feet or his head, he loves that. It is very relaxing for him, very bonding, and physical touch and massage can bring out these very bonding hormones in the brain. The next is to spend time together. Just spending 10 to 15 minutes of unstructured time with your child is enough to maintain a secure attachment. Now, this is bare minimum. Um, if you have seven kids and you're busy all day, 10 to 15 minutes may be a lot. If you have two kids, this may not be as much. You can spend more time, but at least 10 to 15 minutes. And how should you spend this time? Well, this time should spent, be spent just being together. No distractions, unstructured, and avoid making it an interview by bombarding them with questions. Sometimes it's okay to just sit quietly and play with blocks or Legos. Next is to take, take time off of work and school to bond. Kim John Payne, author of Simplicity Parenting, coined the term soul fever after noticing symptoms like irritability, inability to focus, oppositionality, and anger. He recommends, if you notice your children having these symptoms, they may have soul fever. And he recommends taking your child out of school and or taking off work to give them rest from their worries and time to bond. You might even take a whole weekend and go somewhere fun together. Just a road trip where you have a lot of quality time to spend together and gives your child opportunity to talk and open up and share vulnerabilities. 
Dr. Gordon Neufeld also recommends this treatment if you notice that your child is severely peer-oriented or even drifting that way and you need to reconnect with your child. Next is to show appreciation. One of the most powerful ways to show love in any relationship is to express appreciation. And I've talked about how praise is actually not as good as, as we think it is, but appreciation is different than praise. It is simply acknowledging a positive behavior and showing gratitude for it. Next, write love notes. For young children, you could simply draw a picture of your favorite thing to do together or a favorite memory that you made together. For older children, write a simple note expressing, expressing appreciation or some things you love about them. Serve them. In the last episode, I talked about the importance of serving and allowing your child to be dependent when they need it. Find ways to serve your child and show love. One thing I will remember forever is my dad waking up at 6 a.m. to turn on my car so it would be defrosted before leaving for early morning high school musical practice. Yes, I could have done it myself. Yes, I should have been more independent and done it myself. But that act has been much more influential than my dad lecturing me about it and making me do it myself. Serving your children is not going to make them dependent as long as you are always allowing them to be independent when they want it and allowing them to be dependent when they need it. So let's go over what we learned today. Attachment theory is the big idea that humans bond with each other and there's different stages, different ways that we bond. And for parents and children, this bond is essential for a successful and happy life because it restructures the brain in ways that make them able to self-regulate, pay attention, and are not as affected by stress. It also makes children more able to learn because they can focus on the task at hand and are not preoccupied with forming um, or reconnecting with their parent. There are lots of ways that we can disrupt our attachment with our children, but there are also lots of ways that we can reconnect with them. It's important that we are always intentionally reconnecting with our children every day to nurture that attachment. You can find this episode's show notes, as well as more information about this topic on our website, www.simplewonders.org. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing and or rating the podcast, or even better, share it with friends or family. If you'd like to further support our work here, you can donate by clicking the link in our profile. Thank you so much for being here. I can't wait to discuss our next topic. Until then, go out and work some wonders. Wonders.